Welcome back to another week of Torah study. Raviv here, to be joined by Rabbi Batshir Torshio from San Francisco. This week we jump off from some very strange laws in the Torah, many of which are not entirely understood in their literal sense. Though if you've been listening throughout, you may have realized that much of this practice is less about trying to understand a literal meaning in the text and more about deciphering what scholars have gleaned over the past 3,000-some-odd years, allowing us a starting place beyond the page to make it our own. This week's Parsha focuses on laws about the human body and cleanliness, and teeters on this line of ideas surrounding purity, an odd control over people's bodies, and medical ethics. So to get a better understanding of what we're looking at, Rabbi Bachir and I invited Dr. Paul Root Wolpe, the Raymond F. Shinazi Distinguished Research Chair in Jewish Bioethics, a professor in the Department of Medicine, Pediatrics, Psychiatry, Neuroscience, and Biological Behavior and Sociology, and the Director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Wolby comes from a large family of rabbis, and he'll talk with us about how his Jewish upbringing helped shape his professional calling. We'll learn about some of the ways that bioethics and Jewish law intersect and diverge, and how those practices are used in practical ways today. We're still in the midst of an ongoing worldwide pandemic, and Dr. Wolpe has been at the forefront of the field of bioethics helping to make some of the hardest decisions our medical community has had to face in generations. Today is one of those conversations that really shows me the contemporary applicability of Torah. And as always, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with such incredible people. We would be honored to have your support on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the study. We will always take a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Say hi to us over on Twitter at study underscore show. And of course, tell a friend. Without further ado, onto the show. Excited to welcome back senior educator from JCC San Francisco, Rabbi Bachir Torshio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here, Raviv. Thank you. And it is a great honor to be in conversation today with Dr. Paul Root Wolpe, director at the Center for Ethics at Emory University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wolpe. Well, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm wondering if before we get into today's two Torah portions, Tazria and Metzora, Dr. Wolpe, you might be able to define bioethics for us and tell us a little bit about the work that you and your colleagues do at the center. Sure. Well, bioethics is sort of the modern form of medical ethics, which goes back to ancient times. It is most, it's usually traced back to the Greeks, but in fact, medical ethics is older than that. It's older than the Bible. We find medical ethical principles in many ancient civilizations. And that's because medicine puts people at a unique kind of vulnerability. The relationship between the healer and the patient is one where a patient is in great fear and distress and the healer comes hopefully with a solution. And because of that 
difference in power and that vulnerability. Um, ethics has always been a part of that relationship. When you come into the modern times, modern bioethics looks at everything um, from medical issues, from beginning of life to end of life and how we treat people um, and how our medical system works to uh, modern biotechnologies. Our center works a lot with um, neuroscience and neurotechnologies, artificial intelligence. And the last thing I'll say in, in this brief and inadequate view of what bioethics is, <laughs> is that um, American bioethics has a very powerful Jewish substrain going through it. A lot of bioethicists are Jews um, and um, the Jewish contribution to the Western bioethical conversation has been a very powerful one. I didn't realize that. Where did that start? If you think about it, uh, if you put together medicine, which has been tr traditionally oversampled with Jews, and the idea of ethics and morality, which is such a fundamental part of Jewish way of thinking, how could bioethics not have a powerful Jewish voice? It also, by the way, has a very strong Catholic voice. But I think another element of that is modern bioethics in the United States, in the West in general, really was a child of, of the Shoah. That is the Nuremberg trials, the trial of the physicians who did such horrific experiments and, and on human beings during the Holocaust, um, launched the modern bioethical movement because the judges were shocked by not only what the Nazis did, but in their defense, the Nazi lawyers brought up what was happening in other places, including the United States, where terrible uh, violations, certainly not at the level of what the Nazis did, but terrible violations of medical ethics were happening. And that led them to develop a code that they thought should be always implemented called the Nuremberg Code in, me in medical research. That was primarily about research. But that impetus, that movement really generated modern bioethics. So even in its modern form, it had a profound Jewish history. Are you familiar with David Starr Jordan or Lulu Miller's new book called Why Fish Don't Exist? Yes, he, I, I have not read it, but I do know about it. It's brilliant. And she goes into that a bit. Uh, the eugenics that were that was taking place here in the United States that inspired some of the uh, some of the Nazis. Yeah, perhaps to set us on track and to give us some context uh, for our conversation today, if Rabbi Bashir, you would be down to give us uh, this week's Torah portion summary, and then we can dive into that and, uh, and see where it takes us. Yes, thank you. Uh, as you mentioned, it's a double portion, Tazria Metzora, and I'll define those words in just a moment. It's, uh, it's difficult. It's a, a challenging portion, as many of these that we've been looking at in Leviticus can be. I suggest that we... We look at them as a source of understanding what was happening for our ancestors uh, at the time that these laws and these rituals were being created. We just came out of Shemini, and after that previous chapter's discussion of how food that's entering our bodies can make us ritually impure, right? the laws of Kashrut were laid out, the Torah now in Tazria uh, discusses how that which comes out of our bodies can do the same. It's fascinating. And it's a, as I said, a challenging concept in the, in the Torah that it's uh, 
these ideas are maybe less accessible to us than the notion of tuma, which is generally translated as uncleanliness. Although this kind of uncleanliness has no connection to one's physical sanitary condition, it's relating to, or it's describing a ritual impurity. That is, if someone has this particular ailment that we'll talk about in a moment, that they cannot participate in ritual. Remember that this whole section of Torah is about how to be holy, to maintain holiness, and to connect with the divine. So if you have some sort of a particular kind of ailment, you're barred from that contact for for a while. So tuma, this ritual impurity, seems to be the, the result of coming into contact with an awesomely potent force that disqualifies us from being in the sanctuary. And I think that there's... Uh, definitely ample textual evidence that the categories of Tuma were a response to the anxieties that were triggered by death and serious illness and the leaking of life-generating fluids from the body. So the two chapters of the book of Leviticus, Tazria and Metzorah together, are devoted to these laws of dealing with someone who is afflicted with Tzara'at. If Tzara'at was confirmed, which is, and maybe Dr. Ropa, you can speak to this, incorrectly translated as leprosy. But if it was confirmed, three separate ceremonies were required on three different days that focused on sacrifices and cultic rituals. So the infected person had to offer a guilt offering, which itself is kind of problematic, that they are guilty of something that set this condition upon them. But there they are to offer a guilt offering, a sin offering, and then the rabbis added requirements for tshuva, or repentance, as well. So it's important, I think, to remember that all of the rules that are laid out in this portion, which might seem arcane to us, were a very fundamental part of our ancestors' religious system. They weren't just the medical knowledge of the day, and the Torah seems very concerned about bringing people back into the camp who would otherwise be ostracized or expelled. Because if they are inflicted with these particular kinds of illnesses, they are asked to leave the encampment. Mm -hmm. But the Torah does seem to support that these practices sought to include not to isolate the afflicted person. We learn in a Hirsch commentary that if the laws of leprosy were fashioned for reasons of health and contagion, they would be stringent in borderline cases. But instead, we read right here in this portion that doubtful cases are deemed ritually pure. And finally, and I, I think this is uh, just beautifully sensitive to this topic, when the temple stood in Jerusalem, Mourners had a place, a separate gate, through which they entered and continued walking along what was called a special mourner's path. Because as they walked, they came face to face with all of the other members of the community who greeted them with a blessing. May the one who dwells in this place, Hamakom, comfort you. And may you find God, also Hamakom, the holy place of comfort. So those walking in the opposite direction former mourners who had made it through affirmed by their presence the possibility of healing. And it is also true too, and I read this, I don't know if it's in Midrash, I can't find the source, but the one who is asked to leave the community and dwell for a period of, of healing, hopefully healing, on the outskirts of the camp after being diagnosed by the Kohen, who was, by the way, both a medic and the high priest, every time a community member 
leaves or returns, those who aren't ill, they are reminded of those who are in isolation. They leave the camp and they enter it. And they see these, you know, basically encampments of people who are ill on the outskirts of their community. And in seeing them, it might trigger prayers for healing. At the very least, those who are infirmed are not forgotten. You can't miss seeing them as you go about the business of living. I really like that framing of it, that it's not so much to um, to send the infirmed away, uh, but to give space, and but also that we as a community uh, should acknowledge and and make them a part of the community in our thoughts and prayers. And when you leave and come back, you're saying that it's it's still an inclusive act. It's somewhat. I mean, I might be um, I might be framing it uh, a bit more um, thoughtfully than it actually was or felt like. I imagine <laughs> that didn't feel so good. Uh, but the other thing is that only a Cohen could diagnose and only a Cohen could go to those who were infirmed and perform these three separate ceremonies that are required on three different days. It's highly choreographed. They were focused on, as I mentioned earlier, sacrifices and cultic rituals. So I would imagine if it were me, that having someone of that status come visit me might in itself be a source of comfort. Hmm. Does cleanliness, because you mentioned cleanliness, that seems to be a big part of this Torah portion, does that play a large role in Jewish law, more generally speaking, or does it kind of only pertain to these specific places where we get specific rules about cleanliness? It's not only here. It actually, as I described earlier, there's a difference between hygiene and a ritual purity. So as an example, when I bring someone to the mikvah for ritual immersion, they take a shower first. You know, you're going to the mikvah to prepare yourself for something, right? It's a a moment of transition, and that is not for uh, purposes of hygiene that is for a ritual immersion. So a shower is had first and the body is checked mm. completely from head to toe and then you you immerse in there for the same for the same reason it's a it's a ritual uh, purity activity. Right. Dr. Wolpe, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this mistranslation perhaps of leprosy in the Torah. Is that is that a common misconception? The truth is nobody really knows what this is. Mm -hmm. And you see two kind of lines of thought in the tradition about this. One treats it as a physical ailment in many ways and does talk about the, the problem of contagion and sending people outside the city because of contagion. And the other takes the more symbolic um, route and says, these are not physical, but spiritual diseases. And in fact, the tradition somehow seems to flip back and forth between these two approaches. Uh, there And there's evidence for both. But we do that commonly in the Torah, where we look at things that seem in their, in their shot, in their sort of literalness to refer to things in the physical plane. And then we think about them and talk about them instead as, some, as symbolically sacred. And so we're talking about ritual impurities here that require a ritual act to um, resolve. And what we don't see in this Parsha is a lot of advice about how to actually treat the body in, in a medicinal way, but rather how to approach these diseases in a ritual way. And so to try to understand this 
as a disease and a physical ailment doesn't really take us very far because either we have to search and find, well, what is the actual current disease that we think this corresponds to? And there isn't one that works very well, or else we have to just not go down that road and try to talk about what does this mean on a symbolic level? What does it mean on a religious level? And what does it mean on a spiritual level to have the body reflect a sin, to have the body reflect an impurity? And what is it that our tradition was trying to do through these rituals? What was it trying to resolve? What was it actually trying to cure? Right, right. Nachmanides and uh, Hirsch and Sforno go back and forth in debating whether or not this was the result of someone sinning or this really was a medical, physical ailment. And you're absolutely right. There is no, you know, bring a turtle dove uh, to the altar and engage in activities that offer something up, you know, some expatiation. It's really interesting. I also read that lepra is a Greek word that somehow then later was mistranslated as leprosy. And there, there's a lot of ambiguity around this. In our tradition, we talk about, for example, the word mitsora, which is someone who, who has this uh, as actually being an abridgment of moti shemra yes. or someone who speaks slander. And it is tied back to Miriam, who when... Uh, Moshe, you know, brought his wife from from Cushi into, brought her forth. Miriam talked about him and was struck down with this condition. So there's there's ample reason to think about this as a manifestation of our behavior, and I think it's a lot more fruitful for us today. Um, to talk about it in those terms because it it leads to insights that the argument over the physicality of it, you know, I think is ultimately doesn't really give us a lot of insight about. So the the Talmudists talk about the seven reasons that one might be afflicted with this. And that is, as you point out, gossip, murder, perjury, forbidden sexual relationships, arrogance, theft and envy. And I so fully appreciate that our ancestors were having conversations, more than conversations, that people could be struck down for the way that they spoke about others, uh, to others, I mean, uh, even perjury. We've just been given Kedoshim, we've just been given the, the Holiness Code, and all of this is in an attempt to become a people that reflects uh, a level of holiness that is uh, in, in the divine image. And I agree, I think that that conversation is where this is directing us, at least in the Talmud takes it in that direction. Yeah, and, and and the rabbis were always very concerned about the body. I mean, and, and so was our so is our tradition. I mean, fully a third of, of our six hundred thirteen mitzvot are about health, illness, medicine, physicality. And what's so interesting about this conversation about that is it's it so intimately ties in our physicality and our spirituality. It's not just some abstract discussion of being a spiritual person nor is it just a pragmatic discussion of disease. It is, you know, in the most dramatic way, perhaps, the um, chapters that say we manifest how we behave in our bodies. Our bodies are to some degree a reflection of the way in which we decide to live our lives. And certainly that's, that's a message that we hear all the time 
in our modern world, you know, here it is, and I think a really interesting way that can be probed for some real insights into what that means even in modern life. Right. I mean, how how your soul can ache when you behave poorly. And that there are measures, there are ways to come, well, tshuva, there are ways to come back to a sense of balance and to access your your ability to be a spiritual being. I mean, I suppose you're always a spiritual being, but to be able to, uh, that conduit, you know, to divine experience that gets blocked when when we behave in, in ways that, um, well, in these ways, and we, if we perjure or, or gossip. Dr. Wilby, you had mentioned spiritual backgrounds, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about your upbringing and how that led to you becoming a bioethicist with a subfocus on Jewish bioethics. Sure. Well, my father was a rabbi in Philadelphia, the largest conservative congregation in Philadelphia, and um, was very, you know, his his rabbinate, he, he had majored in Renaissance history as in college, and he was a very literate person, and he loved to bring in cultural and even scientific references into his discussion of Judaism. And that was always fascinating to me. Um, and, you know, he, he, his legacy is not just my interest in bioethics, but the fact that two of my three brothers are rabbis. And um, as I got interested in bioethics, at, uh, as a, oh, he was also a pioneer in another way, which is he taught one of the very first courses in the country in a medical school in Philadelphia on death and dying um, from the perspective of how we need to think about it spiritually. So how physicians need to think about it. He was training physicians spiritually and psychologically as well as medically. And as I began to go into bioethics as a field, he and I began to have that conversation more and more and found areas of commonality. So he started to study bioethics with me at the University of Pennsylvania. Hmm. And in fact, um, he, uh, in, in the sociology department, I'm a sociologist and got my PhD in medical sociology. And he also went all the way to his dissertation. He's what we call ABD, all but dissertation in um, sociology of medicine as well. So it really was always an enormous pleasure and wonderful memory for me that I got to walk that path with him together. One of our favorite ways to unwind at the end of the week is to sit back, relax, and head to a virtual gathering where you don't have to do anything. OneTable is offering live virtual events like Shabbat cooking classes, virtual ritual, and trivia nights to help keep the magic of Shabbat, even when we can't gather in real life. Check at OneTable Shabbat's Instagram every week for details. You mentioned end of life and that your father, that was it. A point of focus for him. Are you able to define kind of how, how Jewish law adjudicates when life is lost and death starts? How do we actually define that moment, I guess, both in the medical community and in Jewish law? That's a complicated question because it's changed over time. There's a lot of discussion in the Talmud about how you determine the end of life most famously. Uh, so they needed to look for a moment when you actually had to define the end of life. If you think about ancient cultures, there weren't that many moments where it was absolutely important, crucial that you determine whether someone is dead right this moment. You could wait a little bit and see. 
Um, but there is a moment like that, and it became this the place that this discussion happened, which was when a house falls on a person on Shabbat. And according to, to Halakha, um, if someone is alive in the rubble, you must dig them out, even if it's Shabbat. No one is exempt. Even a rabbi must dig them out. Uh, however, if they're dead, then you can wait till the, you must wait till the end of Shabbat before you dig out their bodies, because then that becomes not pikuach nefesh, saving a life that you can violate the Shabbat for, but digging out their their corpses, which is not something you can violate the Shabbat for. Hmm. So now you must determine immediately whether they're alive or dead. And the rabbis begin to have a, a debate about how you determine that. You dig it out, some say, to the nose, and you hold a feather to see if they're breathing. So others say you dig it out to the neck. Others say to the chest, for the heart. So they, the point is that they use that as a vehicle to have this debate. And the traditional way of determining was cardiopulmonary, that is breath and heartbeat. As we come into the modern time and we created brain death criteria for death, which is cessation of brain function, something obviously our ancestors, even just a few short, you know, even a century ago, never mind a millennium ago, could not determine brain death. We need, you need sophisticated equipment for that. The debate happened in the Jewish community too. Is it permissible to shift from a cardiopulmonary criteria to a brain death criteria? And there were differences of opinion about that. Um, and though many postgame, many decisors decided that yes, that is okay. There are still groups that do not accept uh, brain death and, and only accept a cardiopulmonary criteria for death. And you know, we could talk about this for our entire podcast, but the, the, the thing that's important to understand here is that death is a dynamic process. It's not a moment. And so this understanding of the nature of death as something that we have to attend to and interpret, it's still going on. The debates are still happening in bioethics as well as in Jewish thought about what we really mean about the moment of death. You'd mentioned that that conversation happens both in the Jewish space and also in particularly the bioethics space. Is there a difference in that conversation? Does Jewish bioethics differ from secular bioethics in terms of how dilemmas are framed and how they're resolved? Yes, and and, and in some ways, in many ways. And, you know, there there's differences around how we treat the dying uh, individual. Uh, Judaism is excruciatingly careful about that moment of death. Um, the idea of the gosses, the person imminently dying, that you're not allowed to do anything to hasten that moment at all. And there are other ways. I'll give you an example now with COVID, because this is, I've done a lot of work on the ethics of, of um, distribution of, of vaccines and before that distribution of life support systems and ventilators and triaging people with COVID. And that's a great example of where there's a difference in the secular version and the Jewish version of how we should think about this. So imagine that a, a person comes into a hospital where they don't have any ventilators left. The people who need a ventilator who come into the hospital are going to have to wait. And so the question now becomes, here I've got this really sick patient who needs a ventilator. I'm looking over all my people on the ventilator and I say, ah, that person over there 
they they're not going to make it in the best judgment of the physicians they're going to die um, we can't really help them anymore let's take them off their ventilator because it's really not going to do them any good they're going there's no question that they're going to pass away and let's give it to this person who just came in so that is a decision that some people make in our western hospital systems um, and they will extubate, they will take that person off the ventilator and give it to the person who they determine is needier. Halakha says you may not do that. Halakha says that when someone who is in the midst of the process of having a a life-saving treatment, you cannot withdraw that treatment even to save the life of someone else. So in that conversation, we discussed that difference and, and that the Jewish contribution to that conversation, the idea that someone on a technology that is keeping them alive, even if you don't see the longer term benefit, cannot have that removed for the benefit of someone else. You mentioned all of your work during COVID and the past 13 months. I imagine that uh, the pandemic has at least opened your eyes to uh, new experiences, but has the pandemic changed your perspective on any of these theories based on what you've seen in the past uh, year and a half or so? I think it's changed everybody. Uh, I don't know that it's changed the substance of those kinds of opinions, but, you know, it's sensitized everyone. Look, you know, we look back in history at the way people lived, um, Rabbi Bachir was just saying a few minutes ago, you know, we have to look at things in the context of the culture of the time. People lived every day with the fear of infectious disease. And we've somewhat forgotten what that's like because of the, you know, extraordinary advances of modern medicine. And we've gotten a reminder over the last 13 months of what life was like for most of humanity throughout most of history And what life is like even today for humanity in many places on earth, we tend to get complacent and forget, you know, the power of disease to alter human life and the danger of disease. If you had to pick, you know, one force that molded human history, disease might very well be the thing you pick. It, it, you know, the Black Plague killed a third of Europe, a third of all living human beings in Europe. Um, we forget those things. The 1918 flu epidemic killed 50 million people worldwide. Uh, we think we're immune to those forces and we get humbled when something like COVID comes around and shows us that we're still vulnerable, that disease still takes its toll on us in ways that are not automatically cured immediately and that we have to take care of each other which is what one of the great lessons of COVID is. My responsibility for wearing a mask isn't for my health, it's for your health. And, uh, you know, that's a lesson I think that we're still grappling with. I think in in conversations that I've been having with people over the past year um, around prayer and ritual, the need to come together around the shock of what you just described, uh, Dr. Wolpe, that the vulnerability that we've been, I've been walking around 
just assuming that if I take good care of myself, I will be immune to anything like this. I mean, the fear, it was so rapid, so so quickly um, people were falling and the idea that this was real and that it drastically changed our lives put us in that place of recognizing, put me in that place of recognizing just how vulnerable I am. And the other thing is the need for community. And what I noticed, it was just weeks after lockdown here in San Francisco that Passover 2020 happened. And I lead a a community Seder at the JCC every year. And we thought, first we thought, how will we manage this? Will people come? Will they know how to, to gather in this way? And there were over 400 people there at that Seder. And it was incredibly moving. You know, there were, we visited each other's homes in a way that we couldn't do otherwise, right? Like there were people from all over the world, actually. That momentum continued, was my experience of people finding ways to come together, and I mean religiously, remotely. I wonder how this experience will change the way that we connect with Jewish ritual, with prayer space, moving forward as we, as we move away from this. And I, and I think it will. I think it already has it in has. some ways. Yeah. I mean, m- so many people that um, are, are attending virtual services now, and, and uh, it, it gives you an opportunity for those of us willing to do that. Um, it gives you an opportunity uh, to experience not only your own service in different ways, but you can tune into services from anywhere in the country. Uh my family, I have two brothers who are rabbis, so I don't get to have Seder with them because they're in their own congregations having their Seders. Um, but for last year and this year for Second Seder, we all had family Seder over Zoom. Yeah. So we had the opportunity to be with each other in a way we couldn't have done it before. So, yeah, it's opening up some new ways of being Jewish uh, and new ways of experiencing Jewish ritual. I think one of the the most graphic for me and and very beautiful this past year was officiating a wedding and the photographer, I didn't go to, uh, the wedding took place in Cincinnati, I didn't fly there, but the photographer and the videographer set it up in such a way that I was under the chuppah with them on a MacBook Air and mm-hmm. I could see the couple and they could see me and I was interacting with the parents and we did the Sheva Brachot with, with uh, people coming you know, on their screens, right? And the flower girls in their homes um, walked through their living rooms, you know, seven of them on a screen doing that simultaneously. Yeah, and I think just having access to one another um, in ways that we wouldn't normally, I think that we will continue to do that. The flip side of that, of course, is the longing for community. I was just having a yes. conversation with someone. I mean, there are two theories out there. One is, as the world opens up this summer and spring, people are still going to be nervous. They're still going to be worried, and they're not going to be going to the movie theaters, and they're not going to be going to the restaurants. And the other theory is people are so hungry for community that as soon as they feel a sense of safety, they're going to flood back into communal <laughs> spaces. And I, I tend to think that that's going to be the more likely reality. This has really shown us how important human contact, human presence, and community activities are. It's it's not the same when you're staring at a screen. There's a real 
longing that we have for togetherness in a way that I think this pandemic has really shown us. I would agree. You mentioned, Dr. Wolpe, the work that was done around the, especially the beginning of the pandemic with getting vaccines or testing out and who they go to and ventilators. Uh, where do you see that work happening now? Is, is there a space in which we have to figure out how to ethically share space once again? Some people are vaccinated and some people are not. Um, is there a conversation about any of that within the bioethicist community? We're talking about all of them. I mean, we're still trying to figure out the ethics of vaccine distribution. Um, vaccines were not distributed in a in an in a ethical way in, in many respects. Certainly the wealthier countries monopolize the vaccines and poor countries still don't have access to them. So there's that conversation going on. There's conversations going on about, you know, what is the responsibility of people who are vaccinated? There, I was uh, just interviewed by a reporter about vaccine passports, whether that's ethical, that uh, people who are vaccinated should have a card that would allow them to enter certain spaces that people who are not vaccinated would not be allowed to enter. There are companies now that are mandating vaccines from their employees. There are schools that are mandating vaccines from their teachers and students. And so is that okay? Is it, um, is it, responsible or a breach of, of individual liberty to say that someone must get vaccinated. These are all questions that, that we're debating as a society right now. Part of me wonders if that's any different than any of the other vaccination cards that we need, but maybe that's for a conversation for another time. Um, that is, in fact, the exact question is, you know, we do mandate other kinds of vaccines. So how is COVID different? Right. I mean, I, I had to produce those vaccination forms for my children when I was registering them for school. That is, yeah, that's very interesting. And I guess it goes back to what you were saying before about it's not a matter of me proving to someone that I am vaccinated, but uh, on the ethical side, it is to take care of one another and to show that I'm taking care in a space that includes other people. Yeah, unfortunately for the people who are resisting being vaccinated, that, that is the message that often gets lost is that um, not being vaccinated is ultimately a selfish act because you put at risk vulnerable people who can't get vaccinated sometimes because of health reasons. They're not eligible for, for vaccine and, and we owe them the protection that we can give them by masking ourselves and maintaining social distance. You know, something that what we're doing here is really using a spark from each Torah portion to have conversations like these. And Rabbi Batshir is always so helpful in bringing uh, some Talmud teachings and uh, from prophecies and from different places. Are there specific Jewish texts that are kind of used as the mainstays in conversations around bioethics? Is there a place where most of these conversations live uh, within Jewish literature? Well, there are, there are people who have written books about Jewish bioethics that draw together many different sources that are typically used. So there are secondary sources that do that. There is no one place in the Jewish canon that you know focuses on those kinds of issues. It's scattered throughout the Talmud. It's scattered throughout other important writings in, in our history. So, and, and remember the important thing here is that the rabbis didn't have an understanding of modern medicine and ventilators and viruses. And so when we be, when we have modern bioethical problems and we want to turn to the tradition for wisdom, 
we have to look look at the tradition metaphorically and for its value set. Um, and I think a perfect example of that is the house falling on someone on Chavez that I mentioned before. We need to look and see what was the purpose of this conversation that the rabbis were having and what were the values that informed it and then try to translate that into our modern day. And so that takes uh, a lot of thought and debate and consideration of, you know, interpretive work, which is what Jews are so good at. I've never thought of bioethics, I guess, under that banner, but there must be quite a bit of a Venn diagram because it seems like a lot of the work that you do has to be to interpret the given moment, what's happening in society, and then understanding what laws are in place to implement kind of the best ethical way forward. Yes. And and the Jewish approach has always been casuistic. That is, it emerges from a situation. We are not a people that take broad principles and try to apply them. We look at the lived experience of human beings and try to empathize and have emerge from those very real dilemmas, you know, what the ethical thing is to do. The Talmud doesn't discuss abstract ideas so much. It says, what happens when your ox gores my ox? Let's talk about all the possible ways to think about that. So that very pragmatic approach of um, Jewish thought is, is very helpful when you try to think of modern medical ethical dilemmas. I, I so love that. It's so many different discussions from the Talmud just popped into my mind. Recently studying the laws of uh, Pesach, and if a mouse is found in your house, and that after you have uh, cleaned your house of chametz, of, of all bread products, and the mouse potentially could have some bread inside him or her, what does one do? And I can imagine that that was something that happened. I mean, these are, as you say, situations that people could relate to and probably the specific situations that were brought to rabbis of the day to to work through. Yeah. What a beautiful way to head into Shabbat and have all of these things to think about. Dr. Paul Ruth Wolpe, I so appreciate you joining us today to discuss Parsha Tazria Mitsora and your work uh, as director at the Center for Ethics at Emory University. Thank you for being here. It's great, been a great pleasure, and good job to everyone. And Rabbi Batshir Toshio, thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you next week. I look forward to that as well. Dr. Wolpe, it was great to be in conversation with you. Raviv, thank you for creating the space. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom to everyone out there. Have a good one and look out for falling houses. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying. Now I want to understand. I have done. The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host today was Rabbi Batshir Torshio. Our guest was Dr. Paul Root Wolpe. Artwork by Julia Pott. We will see you next week. Was I unwise to leave them open for so long? As I have wandered through this world, and as each moment has unfurled, I've been waiting to awaken from these dreams. People go just where they I never noticed them until I got this feeling that it's late.